Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I want to continue on today in our exploration of the patriarchs, continuing our look at the life of Abraham, and I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 14. Today we're going to look at war, winning, and worship. These are three things you find in Genesis chapter 14. And again, the New Testament repeatedly tells us that the things written aforetime are written for our learning. That means the Old Testament is not irrelevant to the New Testament Christian. There are circumstances that come into the lives of the Old Testament saints that cause them trouble and difficulty and they struggle with how they are to get through these harsh realities of life, you might say. you got those same kind of situations going on in your life. Now, you may not be living in the ancient Near East and dealing with some of the particulars that they had and how they lived their lives. But nevertheless, there are circumstances that come into your life and have an impact on you and an effect on you, can be discouraging to you. And much of the Bible is instruction in how you got to live through this present life. You see, we can uphold the great doctrines of the faith. And I think we try to do that very frequently here. But those things are intended to form a foundation upon which you can live your life and build a Christian life. And it's important that we not just become so disconnected from the realities of our life and our temporal circumstances and just say, well, we're just focusing on the doctrine of what Christ has done and we don't ever think about our temporal circumstances. That's something different. That's kind of an unhealthy place to be because these things are connected to one another. The great truths of the faith should create that platform upon which you can build faith in God and seek guidance from God about how you should do certain things. And we find that in this example in Genesis chapter 14. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariach, the king of Eleazar, Kedoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Berah, king of Sodom, and with Birshah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Belah, which is Zoar. So, a lot of difficult to pronounce names there. But the summary is, you got war going on. There's a bunch of kings of a bunch of different areas, and we'll find out a little later, they were all kind of getting along for a time, but... Maybe after about a dozen years, it kind of all broke down, and now we're going to go to war with one another. This may sound somewhat like present circumstances, because these are the sorts of things that go on with men. Wars and rumors of wars, these things are always in attendance. It doesn't matter where you plop yourself along the timeline of human history, you're not very far from wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of political strife and things like that. They were dealing with it back then in the time of Abram. We deal with it today. You see, we find ourselves in very similar circumstances. By the way, this is a result of the fall, right? Had men men not fallen into sin, they wouldn't have fallen into all this conflict with one another, which is largely based on their pride and their desire to acquire more stuff and their jealousy over what someone else has and their lack of satisfaction for what God has provided them. All these things get stirred up in the carnal minds of men and create this thing that we have come to know as war. It was happening in Abram's time and it's happening in ours. 
I'll say briefly here, those names are hard to read. I have a pronunciation Bible, so it actually kind of spells it out. It's still hard to read, but you can kind of figure it out if you look at pronunciation. And I've heard at times some Christians that kind of become these pronunciation Nazis. Like, well, you didn't pronounce that quite right. It's supposed to be pronounced like this. Well, you know, the ancient Hebrews pronounced it like this. Well, look, we're speaking in a different language that the Bible was written in, first of all. And there is such a thing as anglicizing words, right? So what I'm trying to say is, as a sidebar here, don't become a total pronunciation Nazi on things. These things are hard to pronounce. I try to read them from time to time just to kind of force myself to do it. I find a lot of ministers sometimes will just say, well, I'll start in verse 3, right? I don't want to read all those things. I think it's interesting to get into the pronunciation. I found that in King James Bibles, I have my grandmother's King James Bible, and it's a pronunciation Bible, and it does not agree with how the pronunciations are listed here. So the people who said, well, I think it's pronounced like this, there's even differences in that. I remember years ago a sermon on King Darius in the Old Testament. Well, his name is Darius, right? If you just look at it, you just say, that's Darius. If your friend came up to you and said, how do you spell your name? And he said, D-A-R-I-U-S, you'd say his name is Darius, right? So some people are going to pronounce it Darius and others, well, actually it's pronounced Darius. We can get wrapped around the axle on kind of silly things like that. And the truth is, if you really get into the matter, if, even in pronouncing Hebrew words, and people will tell you this is how it's pronounced, if you go actually talk to people who are speaking Hebrew, it sounds like they're clearing their throat. It doesn't even sound like a word. So why do I point this out? It's kind of a tangential to my subject today, but I was thinking about it this morning as I was trying to read through this again. I think it's indicative of how God's people can get hyper-focused on something that's not terribly important. So if you say Darius or Darius, I'm not going to make any issue out of it. I'm going to accept that you've anglicized some word in the Bible, and that's fine with me. And I'd point it out as a thing of saying, look, that might be that speck in somebody else's eye that causes you to ignore the, you know, the, the log that's in your own eye. You see what I'm saying? So let's try to be uh, charitable about that. And as I have to pronounce some other names here, please extend that mantle of charity over me in the coming verses. War is a reality. It is a function of the carnal hearts of men. The fact that there is war is proof positive of the depravity of man. That's just all there is to it. And you can say, well, I mean, maybe it just proves that there's horrible people like Hitler and Stalin and these sorts of characters, Attila the Hun. Maybe it just proves there's really bad people. But the fact is this spirit of war that rises up in these very broad expressions throughout history, that spirit of war exists in the heart of every man. It's the anger and hatred and, and jealousy that exists in the heart of man. And some men do not have the position, the station, the influence, the power to be able to express the evil things in their heart to the degree that Attila the Hun did, right? But you shouldn't lead you to believe that that necessarily means those things don't exist in their own hearts. There are horrible things that could be done to you by other people right now. And the only reason those people aren't doing it is because they don't have the power to get away with it. So war is a uh, terrible thing and it is an expression of the fall. It is an after effect of the fall of humanity.
Verse 3, all these were joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. So they're talking kind of to the southeast of where Jerusalem is, if you're thinking about your map of Israel. Twelve years they served Kedolaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So these things happen. You can go for a while and certain nations and regions are getting along with one another, and maybe there's some friction or a little bit of growing tension that's going on, but they're all still kind of playing nice. And then at some point it comes to a head and they find themselves sort of declaring war. They rebelled. So they're splitting off and now we've got a war on our hands. And in the 14th year came Kedolaomer and the kings that were with him and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Sheva, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their mount, Seir, and Elparan, which is by the wilderness. Some of y'all are probably saying Elparan is in Malvern. That's a Mexican restaurant. No, this is Elparan, which is in the wilderness. And they returned and came to in Mishpat, which is in Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazontamar. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Belah, the same is Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the Vale of Sidim. So you got all these different people. They've all got their different take on things, and they're all rebelling against one another. Kind of got two factions there that are coming together and warring with one another. It sounds very complicated to me. Like, you know, when you think about, sometimes you think about wars as Germany versus the United States, so you kind of simplify it like that. But in most of those instances, you find there's other nationalities and people are kind of starting to take sides and you've got people who are part of the Axis powers and part of the allies. And so there's a, there's a very complex web of relationships that takes place between countries and all this. And you're seeing, look, this was going on even in this time, right? We might say, well, we had the war with Germany years ago. Well, well, it was kind of us and the Brits and the French and, and then it's <laughs> Germany and they were allied with the Italians. And as you start kind of scratching beneath the surface and you, you realize there's all kinds of political intrigue and, and partnerships and, and uh, backstabbing and all this sort of stuff that goes on in how these countries and, and regions kind of align with one another and fight alongside one another. So this is all going on in the Vale of Sidim. With Ketelaomer the king of Elam, and with Tidal king of nations, and Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariach the king of Elasar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. This puts an image in my mind of something that I saw in all sorts of things as a kid. Uh, though I've never seen it in person, which is quicksand. Like you watch old cowboy movies and TV shows and stuff, you would think that quicksand is everywhere because people are constantly, oh no, it's quicksand. It's like a big trope in stories. Like this is something that happens. I suppose it exists, though I've never seen it. But it kind of seems like what they're talking about here. There's a place that you go through, it's full of slime, and it would be hard to traverse, and they found it very difficult. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. 
and they that remained fled to the mountain. So it didn't really go well for these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals and went their way. By the way, that's one of those pronunciation issues, right? You, I bet you didn't know you're going to come to church today and find out that Jed Clampett actually pronounced that correctly. I almost universally hear people say victuals because it just looks that way. And almost all English-speaking people say that. But Jed Clampett actually had the right pronunciation. Well, that's just food and provisions. They went and took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went on their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Now, Lot got wrapped up in this whole thing. What did we learn about Lot the last time we talked about it? Well, to me it's on the same page in my Bible. It's back at the end of chapter 13 and verse 12. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now at the time, if you're just looking at this, I think if you were reading through the Bible, you didn't know the whole story. And you read this encounter of Lot, and he and Abram decide they're going to part company, and he kind of notices that land over there is pretty good. And he says, well, I want that good land. I'm going to take my stuff and put it over there. You might not think a whole lot of it, right? Now when I read it, I think that's a terrible decision. But in all likelihood, that's because I understand what came after it, right? I'm projecting my knowledge of the consequences of that decision back into the making of the decision in a way that kind of makes me think, well, I wouldn't have made that foolish decision. But I've made that foolish decision a number of times in my life. And the lesson is that we need to learn that and know that the decisions we make can move you closer to God or further away from God. They can move you closer to the practice of evil or further away from it. Now Lot made that decision and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And if you weren't thinking about what happened after, you might say, well, that's a very pragmatic decision. It was the better land. It looked good. He's got a lot of stuff. He's a younger guy. He's younger than Abram. He's probably ambitious. He probably thinks, man, I won't have, I got to build this thing up. 20 years from now, I'm going to be a very wealthy person. I'm going to have 10 times the amount I have today. I'm going to take it over there to this good land, and that's how it's going to work out. These are the kind of decisions that it's easy to make, and it's easy to substantiate from a pragmatic, viewing things through the carnal eye sort of way. just seems very evident. But that was not the case. And we find these consequences starting to come into the lives of both Lot and Abram. I made the point earlier that when they had all this stuff, they had so much stuff they couldn't live together that no one ever brought up the idea of, well, maybe we don't need all this stuff. <laughs> I mean, men just don't really generally think that way. I remember years ago when I was a kid hearing the pastor of our church recounting this interview on TV with a man who had just made $10 million. His company had just grown to such an extent and he made the first $10 million in his business enterprise. And they went up to this man and said, well, You've made $10 million now. You've got $10 million in the bank. What do you want to do next? And they put the mic on him and he said, I'm looking for my next $10 million. And it's very insightful into the hearts of men. It doesn't matter how much you have, your heart can start to manufacture the need for even more. I remember when Catherine and I got married, <laughs> we didn't have nothing. I mean, we're just, 
Honestly, we didn't have much of anything. We didn't have any money in the bank. Just as happy as we could be. Didn't have nothing. And I can remember as a young man thinking, well, you know, we're going to eventually we're going to get a house and we're going to get some things. Right. We're not going to be driving some old car. I'm going to get a newer car. It's going to be we're going to get better stuff. And I can remember when when we had nothing, just thinking, man, it's going to be great just to buy a new car. If I could buy a new car someday, that would just be fantastic. Well, that day came. We bought a new car at one point. But it wasn't long after buying that new car, you think, you know, Honda Civic's kind of small. It's not a prestigious vehicle. Maybe I need a larger vehicle. Maybe I maybe need a van. Maybe we need some. I mean, no sooner than you get something, the mind starts to say, well, maybe I can get something a little better. It just happens. I bet over the course of your life, you can think of a thousand things that you've thought that way. And you start thinking, well... I just need a little more and a little better. And look, there's things that, uh, that you need in this life. I'm not going to give you a hard time if you've bought a better car or if you've bought a bigger house or whatever those things. Those things, we do have Christian liberty and we have the ability to do with our things as we see fit. But we need to do that keeping in mind that that whole thing can become an idol unto itself where all you're doing is just pursuing some ridiculous thing. One thing I've often thought about in this regard is that if you take people who are earning a certain amount of money, say they've got enough money to have a place to live and they've got a vehicle that can get them to and from work and they're not starving to death, they're able to eat and they're able to go out to dinner a few times a month and live in their lives like most people do, and you start dialing up the amount of money they make, dialing it up and dialing it up, in many respects, the more you dial it up, you're not really changing their life all that much. You're just changing the surrounding. I got to have a place to live. Well, I get a little better place to live. I got to have a car. Well, I get a little nicer car. Well, I got to have a little time off. Well, I get a little bit more vacation. But at the end of the day, you're still somebody out there that's working and you got to have a place to rest your head at night. And we can upsize everything to such a degree that we lose sight of the service we need to have for God. Many people have been taken away from the Lord's assembly just because they're seeking the almighty dollar and they're trying to upsize their lives. It happens all the time. American society is so affluent that we're just basically numb to it, right? We're like a frog in the boiling pot. It just, it just, just surrounds us. We don't even think about it. There's probably not any of us who can't think of a brother or sister in Christ who should be in this assembly right now among us. They may not be members of this church, but they should be following the Lord. You feel certain they have a spiritual sensibility and that they would benefit greatly by being part of the Lord's kingdom. And they are so focused on chasing after the almighty dollar and the things of this world and the trappings of success that they will not be here. They pitch their tents towards Sodom and they don't intend to come back. Well, these things visit trouble into your life. You ever thought about that? Some of these people may end up becoming quite wealthy. You know, if you apply yourself towards something and someone's out there trying to make the almighty dollar, some of them succeed. And you may look at them externally and say, this person's been very successful in their endeavors. But at what cost? They pitched their tent towards Sodom, got very wealthy, and they totally sold out the kingdom of God. They got no inheritance in the kingdom of God because 
They've put their entire investment in the things of this world. Now, it's hard to explain that to people. It's hard for people who are rooted in that to see what they've missed out on. But there's blessing. I know in my own life, I spent so many years in foolishness that I could have spent in the Lord's kingdom. Getting the blessings of the kingdom, the riches of the kingdom of God. So much greater than money and, and all this other stuff. I lost out on that. I'll never get that back. I'm glad I have a heritage in it now. I'm thankful for the blessings I've had later in life in this. But there's great riches that so many of God's people miss out on because they do as Lot did, even as I have done as Lot did at times. And here's what happened. They took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Now Lot's decision in which... Abram was somewhat enfranchised. I mean, they had this as a discussion, and they kind of agreed this was a, a good thing to do. Like, we're going to split. You go over there, I'll go over here. Now he's gone over there, and he's been taken off by, a, you know, a warring faction. They came in, had a war, and they took him off. Well, Lot's decision is now causing problems throughout the rest of the family. You see that? Now Abram's got an issue. He could be, well, I guess I'll just ignore that my nephew here has been taken off by a hostile army. Well, that was not his uh, attitude in it. But you see where these decisions made only a chapter earlier are starting to have some consequences in the life of Lot and Abram as well. Verse 13, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, by the way, that's the first time Hebrew is used in the, in the Bible, referred to as a Hebrew, I believe. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Adam. It's good to have some friends in the matter who will come and tell you what's going on. There was some sort of relationship there between Abram and the others, and they let him know what had happened. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive... It's actually his brother's son, but he's referring to him as his brother. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Now, Abram basically raises up his own private army to go solve this problem. He's got men in his service, 318, that were fighting capable, I guess you would say. And now, at his own expense... He's going to say, well, I'm just going to have this private army and I'm going to go try to get Lot back, right? It's going to cost him something. You see, there was a decision made and it seemed like something that was going to be economically advantageous to everyone involved. And now it is incurring a great cost. And Abram's saying, I got to go get this guy. I got to go get involved in this war through this activity here, and it's going to cost you. And take a moment to think about what it takes to provide for 318 men who are in a military <laughs> endeavor, right? It's not packing 318 brown bag lunches and saying, you know, go out and get it done and be back before nightfall. This is something that requires everything involved in feeding them multiple times, all the stuff that's required for them to travel, all of the weapons required for them once they get there to be able to have any kind of influence on the situation. It's a massive commitment of financial resources on Abram's part, not to mention the potential for people losing their lives in the matter. So point I'm making is that this decision that Lot made in the previous chapter to pitch his tent towards Sodom 
not only had effects in Lot's life, which were very negative, they have collateral damage spreading out into Abram and his resources and all these sorts of things. And it makes you wonder, how would this have been different? It makes me wonder, what if they had sat down and said, we got so much stuff, we've got way more than we need. Why don't we just stay here and worship God? Why don't we divest ourselves of a lot of the stuff? Because we don't need all that anyway. And let's just stay here in the land that God said He was going to give us and see how the Lord's going to bless us in that regard. It does make you wonder. I don't know the answer to it, but I know that the decision that was made brought these consequences into the lives of everybody involved. So he pursued them unto Dan, which is quite a long ways away, and he divided himself against them and his servants by night and smote them and pursued them in Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Well, Damascus is a long ways away. It's like 100 miles away or something to the north. So very expensive endeavor. But he goes after him. And in verse 16 it says, And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Well, he was successful in it. Cost him a lot of money. He ends up winning, brings back all the goods and everything. So at great cost and great risk, he has to go and try to rectify this situation that might have been avoided had better decisions been made earlier. So the Lord was with him in that respect, was merciful to him in allowing him to win over those who would war against them and bring Lot back. So that's the winning portion of this. He was successful in that. And in verse 17, we find something about worship. There was a war. Abram won out in the matter in the final mix and kind of got all their stuff back and got his nephew back. So he won in that regard. But now there's going to be some worship coming into play. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketelaomer and the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Now here's this enigmatic character, Melchizedek, that steps on the scene here. Hadn't heard anything about this. And now you find Melchizedek stepping in here. And he was the priest of the Most High God. Now when we think about the priesthood, typically speaking in the Old Testament, you're talking about the Levitical priesthood. There was a tribe of Israel that descended from Levi who had the responsibility of priestly matters in the domain of the worship of God in the Old Testament. That's generally what people are talking about when they talk about the priesthood in the Old Testament. There is this interesting character who much is made of in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek, who appears here on these pages, and I believe is mentioned in the Psalms maybe, and then is explained in the book of Hebrews. This guy's kind of coming out of nowhere, right? I mean, here he is. He is the priest of the Most High God. He's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. He's the king of peace. And he's the priest of the Most High God. Now, if you want a search the Scriptures opportunity for this week, go and read Hebrews chapter 7. We may look at it a little bit in this sermon where much is said about Melchizedek and the symbology that's involved in all this. <laughs> I'll make this sidebar point. If you want to split an old Baptist church, get a bunch of elders in the basement and start having them argue over who Melchizedek was. And you're liable to get 
a lot of different opinions on that and a lot of them very stridently expressed and uh, I'm just going to tell you right now when it comes to the enigmatic character of Melchizedek I'm not sure who he is but I'll stick with what is said about him in the text and go no further than that. Those who might take it more than that I would just say they must have more insight on the matter than I do. And that's not raining contempt on that opinion. It's just honestly saying I'm not comfortable making some of the assertions that are made there. He was the priest of the Most High God, whatever else might be said. I mean, he was the king of peace. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. I think that's an allusion to our inheritance in Christ. And blessed be the Most High God, which have delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Now this is Abram giving tithes to Melchizedek. That's one-tenth. So Abram's in this kind of mode of worship here. He's with this priest of the Most High God who's putting a blessing upon him. And he's saying, I'm giving you one-tenth of what I got here. We know that tithing was an Old Testament ordinance of the Old Covenant worship service. But this is sort of a prefigure of that matter we see here. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Let me just repeat, by the way, in this section about worship. There's something given here. I'm not going to tell you that this text in the Old Testament establishes that God's people in the New Testament need to tithe. That is not the case. We are not under a tithe as the Old Testament people were. However... We are under the spirit of giving as we see fit and as God would move upon your heart. And one thing you might ask in that matter, a tithe is one-tenth. They were under law, but we're under grace. And which is better? Is law, is law better or is grace better? So there's something to be explored in that matter. But we are not under the law obligation of tithing in this respect, though we are to give and support the Lord's church. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram wasn't doing this for his own personal gain in the matter, and it appears as though this is like him turning down a massive treasure of wealth. Right? It's like, this is all the stuff you had, and I've got it now. And he's coming to bring it back, and they're just so happy that the situation's been rectified, like, trying to get him to keep it, so to speak. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want this to be that sort of a situation. And I think in this, again, this is my speculation, I feel as though, it, looking at this text, that Abram has learned something about the matter of riches, I wonder if he hadn't thought through this matter. You know, if we hadn't been going after riches so much, we might not have gotten this situation in the first place. And now we've done something else, and these great riches are set before me again, but this time I'm not going to go that way, right? You realize he had done this before. He went to Egypt. He disobeyed God and went to Egypt. God never told him to go to Egypt. And while he was down there, he had a mess of trouble, but he came out of there rich. Came out of there with a lot of stuff. I think there's an indication here. I can't say this is absolutely true, but it seems as though there's an indication here that Abram's kind of learned something about the matter of riches. 
And it's, it's got to be about something more than that. So he didn't want anything to do with that. He didn't want them to be able to say that they made Abram rich. And in the final verse, he says, Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of these men which went with me, Aner, Eshcol, Mamre, let them take their portion. So basically, pay us back for our expenses. Cover the expenses of what we did here, and we'll call it even, was Abram's thought in the matter. So that's, that's a very early example of worship in the Old Testament. And it has this character, Melchizedek. And maybe in the final moments here, we'll, we'll look at something said in Hebrews chapter 7 about him. Hebrews chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Now you, these things are laid out about Melchizedek here, and they incline people to have all kinds of opinions about who he was. Was he just a man that enigmatically shows up and then disappears, and he was emblematic of Christ? Was he something more than that? Many would regard this as a, sort of a theophany or something along those lines. This was Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ of the time of Abraham. I don't go that far with it. I've heard men say that, and I'm just trying to be as honest with the matter as I can be. I see that these things are said about him. I affirm whatever else about him that he is the king of Salem, he's the priest of the Most High God, and he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That's what I say about it, because that's what the Bible says about it. And uh, anything beyond that, I don't know. But I know he's spoken of here, and at least there is a connection here that's made between his priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. It says he is without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So you can see why people would start to say, well, is this talking about Jesus? You can see that kind of language in there. Then you have to contend with, well, it says he was made like unto the Son of God. That kind of militates in the other direction. So I'm only pointing this out because there's a lot of speculation about Melchizedek. And my approach to it is to say, let's just take what it says about him. And just take that and go with it and not have to go any further than that. Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Now he's making the point about the tithing of the, and the Levitical priesthood that everybody knows about. All the, all the Hebrews were well aware of that situation. But then he says, but he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So this predates the existence of Levi. And yet you've got Abraham, who's the father of them all, so to speak. He's paying tithes to Melchizedek. Now he makes an interesting point about this. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. The less is blessed of the better. That means... Melchizedek blessed Abraham, right? The implication is Abraham was lesser than Melchizedek because he was blessed of the one who was greater. You see that? So you've got that in play, but then he makes this interesting point because remember this predates Levi and the Levitical priesthood. And he says, 
And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. See, Levi was Abraham's son, if you follow the lineage down. He's going to make this point here. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. He's making the point. Whatever you might say, whatever you Hebrews to which this was written might say of the greatness of the Levitical priesthood and the importance of the priesthood in the worship service, he's making the point that this thing that Melchizedek represented is better than that. You follow me? It's something better. Because even Levi, who was yet in the loins of Abraham, gave tithes unto Melchizedek. It's making reference ultimately to the work of Christ, who is said to be, Christ is said to be of the order of Melchizedek. This passage, while it seems sort of enigmatic and lots of people take it in a lot of different places, to me the core principle here is for people to realize, and this is written to Hebrews, right, who made much of the law. This was their entire religion was about. We got the law and the oracles of God and we're trying to follow the law. The main point here is that the law is subservient to this better covenant, which is Christ. Amen. And He's of the order of Melchizedek. It's based on better promises. And it's the only arrangement that's going to get anybody into heaven, because none of you can keep the law. You follow that? That's the point that's being made. And I would invite you to spend some time this week, if you're interested in such things, read the rest of Hebrews chapter 7. Just read through that. You've heard now a little bit about what was said of Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. He's kind of mentioned in this, it's a brief mention and this weird little episode happens. There's some worship and some tithing and, and then that's it. And then he's mentioned later on, there's an entire chapter here de devoted to what that meant. You know, if you had been reading this in the Old Testament, I don't really know how you would understand what exactly that means. And the book of Hebrews is very helpful in pointing out really one of the themes of the book of Hebrews, which is that the new covenant is based on better promises. It's way better than the law. The law is not going to do anything but condemn you. But that which was done under the priesthood of Melchizedek by the Lord Jesus Christ is the thing that's going to land every one of us in glory. So it's a better covenant based on better promises. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.